Hey everybody, thanks for stopping by to check out the Rivals.com early, early signing period podcast. I'm Eric Bossy, Rivals National Basketball Analyst. I'm here alongside our other national basketball analyst, Corey Evans. I'm coming to you live from Kansas City. Corey is at home in Pittsburgh, and we've got Dave Barry out in the wine country of Southern California, Temecula, handling the boards for us. Um, guys, no need to waste any time. Let's go ahead and just get right into it and uh, take a quick run through the top five classes and talk about what stands out with things. Corey, the number one class is uh, held on to by USC. What do you have to say about the Trojans? I mean, they checked every box that they could have asked for with you know size, multi-positional ball play, shot makers. Um, you get to love what they have with Anyeka Okungwu and Isaiah Mobley, two five-star prospects. Um, and three other four-star prospects with Kyle Servant, Max Ogbonpolo, and Drake London. So really, they hit every box they could have asked for early on. You know, Corey, a lot has been said about um, the hiring of Isaiah Mobley's father, Eric Mobley, as an assistant coach, and the assumption is that eventually the number two player in the class of 2020, Evan Mobley, comes along with them. It seems to me like all these guys are guys that they could have gotten with or or without um, Coach Mobley, do you think too much has been made about his hiring? It definitely has, and that's not really the fault of his or USC's, but but more so of the past with the hiring of um, players' fathers. But it goes to show you, whatever it is, if it helped or not, they saw the number one class in America and already have more than a strong chance, like you said, with the younger Mobley brother. Um, what what stands out to you about any of these guys? You know, we know Mobley is a skilled scorer, and like you say, Onyeka can block shots and bring size. But I'm really intrigued by these wings, Agbon Polo and Drake London. Can you break those guys down a little bit? Yeah, definitely. You know, Drake London's one of the rare two-sport athletes that will actually sign for football, um, but he's also a pretty highly acclaimed prospect in the basketball hardwood as well, of course being a top 75, top 80 prospect here at Rivals. Um, tough, athletic, ever-improving kind of guy that's really wired to compete. But Max Agbonpolo is one of the guys that could really um, rise up in the rankings over the next four or five months just because he's six foot seven, and today's game where, like we said, multi-positional ball play is so vital. He's someone that can play the two, three, and even four on both ends of the basketball floor. So, I mean, that's the kind of guy you, you, you want to hit your wagon towards and, and see what he can become. I want to move on to the number two class. I'm going to go ahead and take this one. This is Villanova. Uh, what Jay Wright and the Wildcats have done over the last couple of years is amazing. Two of three national championships, really a turning themselves into a, a new age blue blood, really, if you were speaking results. And they've done it keying on kind of recruits that are maybe in that top 35 to top 100 range. They've they've had some redshirt issues that have been more out of It certainly hasn't hurt, but now they're getting the top-end talent, and this class, two five-star, uh, Brian Antoine, one of the top shooting guards in the country from nearby, Tinton Falls, New Jersey, the range. And then you've got Jeremiah Robinson Earl, a kid from out here in my neck of the woods, Kansas City, who I think Villanova came in and started recruiting him in July and was able to, to overcome and land it. And you had those guys. 
guard from DeMatha, DeMatha High School in the D.C. area. And then Eric Dixon, a local guy. Should we look forward from these guys down the road? Should Villanova fans be more excited than even the excitement of having the number two class should have them? I think so. I mean, I think it's it, it checks every box, like you said, as well. With guys like Dixon and Jeremiah Robinson Earl and Justin Moore, um, that, that's a heaping amount of talent going to the main line. At number three, Corey, we've got Louisville. Chris Mack, in his first year, he signed six guys this time around. Break down that class for us and, you know, tell us what you think. You know, like, what's a fair expectation of this? Because you see a number three ranking, and as a fan probably you think, oh, wow, these guys are going to come in and, you know, we're going to have a bunch of one-and-done guys and stuff like that. But I don't think that's really the makeup of this class, is it? No, and I don't want to be the pessimist here, but um, of the top ten teams in our team rankings, there are only two programs that do not have a five-star pro five-star prospect in their class. In Louisville, of course, is the highest rated to not have that. Um, Auburn being the uh, the second program without a five-star prospect. Um, but w what this class does, it infuses a ton of depth into the program um, with Aiden Aguihan and Samuel Williamson really being the gems of the class. Um, you know, it hits a lot of the boxes similar to what we talked about with USC in regards to numbers and positional play um, and this and that. Aiden Aguihan can be someone that can really develop into a tremendous low post asset. Uh, Samuel Williamson is probably the one guy that could, could really bolster this class um, moving ahead, he's at six foot seven, wing two three four type that Chris Mack has loved to have in the past. That I saw last weekend and was phenomenal against top five junior R.J. Hampton. If he could put it all together, that's the guy that could be a five star prospect and a no brain talent. Um, Quinn Slazinski is a, a seventeen year old um, potential redshirt prospect for Louisville next year. Um, six seven, six eight, shot maker, David Johnson, local talent, really good passer, decent shooter, um, great feel for the game. Jalen Withers, six foot seven, six foot eight, long and rangy, um, good athlete, forward that can play multiple spots. And then Josh Nickelberry is he was the first prospect to commit to Chris Mack at Louisville and was pretty vocal about saying hey, it's okay to go to Louisville now. And he kind of started the trend of um, what we've seen this fall of five, six guys going to Louisville in the 2019 class. So do I think it's number three good? Um, mathematically, maybe. Um, the star talent, it might be a little lacking for a top three team in America on the, uh, on the ranking side. But I do think it, it hits a lot of the boxes. So I think what you're saying to kind of sum up, and, and I think this is fair, is we're not talking about the Fab Five here. We're not talking about, you know, gosh, I, I hate to use Kentucky as an example. Or let's just use Duke this year. This isn't R.J. Barrett, Zion Williamson, and Cameron Reddish coming in. This is more uh, maybe look at what Tennessee did with Grant Williams and Jordan Bowen and all those guys a few years back. It's a foundation class that maybe has a star in Samuel Williamson, but – the idea is that two or three years from now, you've got a really great foundation for your program. Would you say that's fair? 
Yeah, most definitely. I think um, this is definitely what was needed by Chris Max Bunch. I mean, to, to really lay the foundation down. Um, like you said, not the star power, um, but it definitely has a high floor for a class. But, you know, number four, Florida, I think, is one that kind of has that star power. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think so. And I was actually going to get through, let's kind of burn through these last two um, in the top five. Florida, you mentioned they've got the star power. One, let's point out that it's not Kentucky for a change that has the highest ranked class in the SEC. It's Florida, even though Kentucky does have the two highest ranked commits in the SEC, but we, we'll get to that. Um, two five stars, Scotty Lewis, an athletic attacking shooting guard who can kind of play all the perimeter, really fits the Gator style. And then Trey Mann, a uh, homegrown point guard who can score. He reminds me a lot of Devontae Graham, who just finished up at Kansas. Um, you know, can play the two or the one, playmaker, but more of an offensive guy. He's a guy that looked to be pretty much a done deal for North Carolina. And at the last moment, he just kind of had a change of heart and decided to commit to Florida when it looked like they were about to take a commitment from a guy who's part of USC's class in Kyle Sturdivant. So it's kind of funny how those things work out. So you've got those guys, and then they've got a solid big man, another Floridian, Omar Payne, who's at Little Montverde Academy this year. Still figuring things out on the offensive end, but he's long, he can run, he can rebound, he can play the four or the five to him. And, you know, it's tough to talk about Scotty Lewis without talking about his high school and summer teammate, Alex Klatsky, who's going to come in as a preferred walk-on with an opportunity to earn a scholarship down the road. You know, he was certainly a big help in getting Lewis down to Florida. And then, you know, we move on to the number five class, Corey. Arizona, just go ahead and, and run through them briefly for us. Yeah, I, I love this class. And kudos to Sean Miller and his staff to really um, prioritizing a select few early in the process and of course number one was Nico Mannion who reclassified from the 2020 class into 2019 towards the latter half of the summer um, and, and with Nico a few months later came Josh Green and that's one of the most dynamic backcourt classes in America and one of the more entertaining classes that Sean Miller is going to love to coach um, and really cultivate those guys Nico Mannion's a big-time playmaker, athlete, um, really coming into his own. And Josh Green is one of my favorite prospects, maybe in the 19 class, and of all of high school basketball. He's a six-foot-six, point-wing type, real good feel for the game, great, great athlete, open-floor playmaker. His shot's gotten way better. And, And along those two is maybe one of the more underrated wing prospects that could really Flourish in college is Terry Armstrong from Michigan, finishing out his uh, his prep career out there in Arizona, along with Christian Coloco, who's a high upside seven footer or near seven footer from California. Um, altogether, they have shot makers. You know, they have isolation scores, they have athletes, they have low post threats, and they have a great playmaking threat in the backcourt. Nico Mannion. So really, it's a great job overall by Sean Miller and those guys. You know, I think Arizona, it's fitting that we finish with them at number five when discussing the team rankings because I think it's a a nice segue into what we want to talk about next because they obviously have been a part of a lot of negative headlines over the last year with the FBI's investigation into, into college corruption. We've had endless coverage of that from every news outlet you could imagine um, with the first round of trials wrapping up and 
Adidas executive Jim Gatto, along with uh, Christian Dawkins, a kind of wannabe agent runner being convicted of defrauding universities, essentially. We've got all this talk about college basketball corruption, yet some of the teams mentioned, you know, USC, whose former assistant Tony Bland is awaiting trial, is the number one class. Arizona, who's been mentioned. Louisville, whose uh, involvement with Brian Bowen uh, cost Rick Pitino his job and Kenny Johnson his job there, and they're heavily mattered. Arizona's mattered. You know, Kansas, who's been brought up, is still getting guys. We've got all these schools that are brought up and – Yet they still be doing seem to be doing quite well on the recruiting trail. Corey, you know why do you think this is? Uh, there's really no rhyme or reason. I think most of these programs kind of go back to um, prioritizing a select group and also protecting their turf, as you could say. Um, Arizona was a program that, in recent years, was scouring the nation from the Atlantic to the Pacific for guys. And now you have um, three, you can call them in-state guys. I mean, Josh Green's playing at IMG, but his parents reside in Phoenix. Nico Mannion's a in-state guy. Terry Armstrong is finishing his prep career in Arizona. Um, and Coloco's a California kid. Um, USC really made sure to lock down the state of California and get the best guys. Um, Oklahoma State did a great job of getting the top two um, to, to the better prospects from the state. And then Marcus Watson is the second cousin of Mike Boynton. So um, it kind of adds up there a little bit. I think these programs made sure that they couldn't cast a wide net and shoot for the moon, but rather they wanted to prioritize and, and go for a, a select group, like I said. And I think they kind of hit it off. Um, but then again... Nothing's really happened from the NCA uh, or from the FBI investigation as of yet, right? Right, yeah. No, we've got a few convictions, and we've got lots of headlines, and we've got, you know, fans of the schools who have been mentioned had just enough come out in trials probably to say, hey, look, see, our, our schools didn't know what was going on. You know, we, we really were the victim here where if you're cheering against those schools, it's like, hey, look, we told you these guys were dirty. College basketball is dirty, you know, um, our mentions, Corey, whenever we do an article or put something on Twitter or, or post on message board, it certainly reflects that. So, so we deal with that. But I, I've got a couple of theories, too. I think on one hand, I think most of the schools that have been involved, at least from the communications that I've had with kids being recruited by them and their families, they've done a really good job of being as upfront as possible. Um, when you're dealing with the federal government, there's really not a leak. There's no way to know like what's coming. You know, it's not like where you and I sit around and talk about, hey man, I, I hear I hear so and so maybe leaning here because I heard this from this AAU coach or this assistant coach who was recruiting him at XY University who's out heard this from a parent when he was out. You know, we don't have those sources coming from the FBI. So I think schools did their best to address anything that might possibly come up to begin with. And then also I think, frankly. I think there's some people out there who just don't care. I think with some of the schools they're picking or they're considering, they're saying, you know, okay, I know that I know there may be potential trouble with the NCAA, which, as you mentioned, the NCAA hasn't shown any inclination to really do anything about all this yet or what information they're going to gather. But I think what's happening is schools are saying, okay, or kids are saying or their families are saying, hey, maybe they might get in trouble down the road. If they do, I'm going to trust that they're going to let me out of this 
out of this letter of intent or whatever I sign or I'm going to be able to transfer. And I think they're saying, okay, there's that negative stuff out there, but if I look at the on-the-floor product and what this coach at whichever school has done in the past, I still feel his fit for coaching me or what he's shown with guys with me supersedes any potential for trouble. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, and, and you know, piggybacking you there, most of these guys, for for one reason or another, they're just thinking one year in advance. They're just thinking about, oh, I'm going to be in college for one year. So in keeping that in mind, if I'm going to be there for one year, okay, the chances of that select program being penalized um, before I leave that program is, is very minimal. So as you said, I'm looking at the track record of that specific program, what they've done, and okay, they can offer me that for now for the time being. If they get penalized, I'll be gone by then anyways. So as you said, I think um, that that could play a large, large role in all this. Yeah, and I think this is one, the FBI stuff and the changes that happened to summer basketball as a result of some of the stuff with the whole Condoleezza Rice Committee, that's that's a subject that we could fill literally hours on. On another on another day and get into but i want to kind of keep things moving because i feel like you know on, on this one like this other than saying oh we hate everybody everyone should be hammered it's going to be tough to win with the fans on this even though i think people can see some of the, the angles we're coming from and you know i think we need to let everything happen and, and see what the ncaa is going to do before we start to take that next leap but moving on you know it's about halfway through the signing period 17 of our top 50 prospects are still on the board quite a few Twelve of them are five stars. Of that group, only one, C.J. Walker, from down in Florida, is set to decide. He's going to decide Wednesday, the twenty-first, the last day of the period. Um, do we think anyone else is going to decide? Um, why are these guys taking their time? Especially, why are so many of these guys finished with their visits? Whether it be Vernon Carey at number one, or Isaiah Stewart coming up theoretically here in a little bit, or uh, Keon Brooks, who's going to finish his last visit to Michigan State this weekend. Why are so many guys finishing their visits and saying, I'm not going to wait all the way till the spring, but maybe in late November, early December, I'm going to sign, you know, what's, what's the thought process behind this? You think? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy, right? Like we've seen in the past, these five star guys take their recruitments into the spring, but that was more so because they had not taken their visits yet. But you have guys like, Vernon Carey and Jay McDaniels and James Wiseman and Isaiah Stewart by the time next week rolls around, they'll be done with all their visits. Um, Isaiah Stewart will have to take the visit to Duke next week. Um, but still, it's, it's, it's pretty eerie, as you could say. Um, but I think it's all about leverage. I think they understand that, okay, most of my class, most of the programs involved with me are the ones trying to get my signature have really gotten their guys but they they're holding one spot and that's just for me so why rush my decision whatsoever and also it's kind of the personality of this class as a whole um these guys are i don't know what it is if what was in the water um 17 18 years ago but these kids are just they're very laid back in this 2019 class with guys like vernon carey and wiseman and McDaniels and Stewart, um, they have never been in much of a rush, and they don't seem to be in much of a rush. 
And like you said, they're planning on committing soon, but there still is no decision date for guys like Stewart or Carey or Wiseman or McDaniel. So um, that's my best shot. I mean, what do you think? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I think a couple of things. One, you mentioned about this being a laid-back group, whatever you want to call it. I think we're also starting to see maybe with a little bit with last year's class and this year's class a few things. One, these guys are realizing, as you alluded to, that I don't need to decide. I, I hold the power in this. I, you know, I wrote this earlier this week that yep. I don't think any elite prospect should be committing early, nor do I think they should be signing a, a letter of intent, you know. If these guys want you, they'll find space for you. And I don't think Duke or Kentucky or North Carolina or Michigan State or Miami is going to call Vernon Carey's bluff and be like, all right, dude, if you don't commit by the 21st of November, we're out. Because if they say that, then they didn't feel like they had a chance anyway. It's just, he's just too talented. And, and granted, there's a limited number of guys who can do this, right? But the other thing that's interesting to me is these guys have all been in an era where since they were in fourth, fifth grade, they've been on YouTube. There's been coverage of them because there's coverage of guys that young. They've been ranked. And so there's never been a time where they're not talked to and they're not constantly having media attention. And what happens with guys in the past is I felt there's a lot of guys in the past who have committed early because they've grown tired of the media attention. Yeah. Whereas these guys... I honestly feel that some of them are hanging on because they won't know what to do once there's not media attention and their families don't know what they're going to do once there's not media attention and talking to recruiting guys and talking to coaches about their choices. It's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic that we set up here. Don't you think? Yeah, for sure. And, and to throw in another, another thing, another layer there is um, the backgrounds of some of these kids, um, you know, Vernon Gary father played eight, 10 years in the NFL and, um, was on the O2 Miami Hurricane national title um, performance team. And, you know, Jay McDaniels, brothers, Jalen McDaniels, they've been there, done that, the family with Jalen two or three years ago, who is now at San Diego State. Cole Anthony, same way with his father, Greg. So there also is some background there um, and rather some polishing of these higher-level guys of, hey, we've seen this before, let's settle down, we hold the leverage, and like you said, none of their guys have seen the power before. They all know that they have the power. These guys kind of do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we've got these guys left over, um, you know, almost the entire top ten. Uh, like we said, lots of five-star guys. When you look around at these guys, Corey, who's the guy that stands out to you as maybe being the single most important player to one school or another's future? You know, which, which guy do you think – can topple the most dominoes and then which are these programs that's scrambling to get these guys because it really is kind of a a limited number it seems like for each kid we're talking about the same schools it's it's duke kentucky north carolina michigan state washington to an extent kansas ucla you know there's probably only like 11 or 12 schools that are involved with this group of 12 13 guys at the top end which of these schools do you think is under the most pressure to get something done i think duke um I just just looking at the hole that they could have next year, they're already pretty uh pretty slim in the front court, and you take away a guy like Zion Williamson and even someone like R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish who can be a small ball power forward, um, and you replace them with with nothing as of right now. Um, you just never know what you'll get with Marquise Bolden. 
Javin Delorier is a great role guy, but he's not a go-to piece down low that Coach K's been accustomed to having. So if they don't get a guy like Vernon Carey or Isaiah Stewart, primarily the only two guys they have a shot at this fall, um, Coach K is going to be in a situation that he's never been in before. And I'm not talking about not being in the national title conversation, but better yet, not even having a chance of an ACC title. And granted, he'll be able to coach his butt off as always, but not having that interior cog that he's had over the past five, six, seven, eight, nine years, um, that's definitely going to be a glaring weakness next year. Uh, am I right there? Is it James Wiseman? Is it Isaiah Stewart? I mean, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, I guess it depends. Um, cause I think, you know, you can make an argument for Kentucky. I think we can make a serious argument about Kansas here. Um, you know, they've got a couple four star guys and Isaac McBride, a point guard and Christian Braun, a small forward local guy who can, who can come in and help, but aren't instant impact guys. But, you know, they've got Matthew Hertz sitting out there as a guy that, they really can't afford to miss on because he's probably their, their top opportunity at a, a true impact guy. You know, they can try and get involved with a precious Achua who none of us really have any idea what's going on with him right now. But, you know, there's those guys out there, but I would dial in on Cole Anthony just because of how much of his recruitment option and they've missed on other guys whether it be a Trey Mann or a Boogie else it's kind of like you say where Duke isn't going to have you know trying to compete for a conference regular season championships think about this the last AC this string of one and done players over the last six seven years and they've not won a Did win a 2017 ACC tournament title, but they've made Final Fours. Some tournament success, but to get back, you know, North Carolina really only has one. He could be gone for the NBA after this year, so Cole Anthony strikes me as that one single But... You know, I think when we go through which program is under the most heat, I don't think Michigan State is in that much trouble um, in terms of like, you know, if they get Vernon Carey or Isaiah Stewart or Keon Brooks, great. But if they don't get them, they're still pretty set up. They're going to have seniors back. They've got good freshmen coming in. They, they've, got some, they've got some good stability there. But it's Kansas who I think really needs a one-and-done kind of guy. As you mentioned, Duke really needs one or two one-and-done type of guys. Kentucky, I think, we're in a really strange territory with them in that we're so used to them turning over five, six, seven guys a year. You look at their roster right now, and they're still really young, and you assume some guys are going to go pro, but who do you look at Kentucky and say, hey, you know, that guy's a for sure one-and-done or two-and-done guy. That guy's going to go the lottery who do you see that's that guy? And, and if you're John Calipari, how do you sell that? And is that maybe a little bit of a reason why they're having, you know, and I'm air quoting here by Kentucky standards, a down year with only top 10 small forward Khalil Whitney and top 10 combo guard 
you know, um, Tyrese Maxey. It's it's interesting, as you said, um, perplexing a bit as well, um, especially in the front court where they're they're telling prospects or it's out there that they they want two or three front court guys, and they've yet to get one. And as you said, who is going to lead next year? I mean, they'll lose Reed Travis, and could they lose P.J. Washington, Nick Richards, um, E.J. Montgomery? They definitely could, but I think it's um, I think it's definitely the class as a whole. Going back to it, um, they're very very laid back, but they're also a pretty intellectual group. Um, they think things thoroughly through. Um, I think the the cachet of the UK brand might be um, waning some, as you could say. And I think these kids are starting to realize it's more about the right fit for me than the right fit for just me being a five-star prospect, if that makes any sense. I mean, do you think it's about right? Yeah, no, and I think you, you walked you walked us very very nicely right into kind of what we were going to talk discuss next. And that's, um, I think we're seeing a little bit of a shift in recruiting power. You know, Duke, Kentucky, and the Blue Bloods, have really dominated, especially Duke and Kentucky. No one disputes this. Have really dominated recruiting over the last few years, but there seem to be some struggles this year. If we look at it, okay, if we're talking the traditional blue bloods, Kentucky has the number six class right now. Duke has the number sixteen class. North Carolina has the number nineteen class. UCLA is there at twenty nine, and then we're all the way down to forty eight before we get to Kansas and Indiana who's still involved with two five-star prospects, Trace Jackson Davis and Keon Brooks, mind you, so they're going to go up. But Indiana's all the way down at 85 right now. So we know those rankings are going to go up as they add guys and stuff like that. But we're seeing five stars going to Arizona. They've always gotten guys. They've been kind of the glamour program out west for a while now. with guys that are on that five-star cusp. Ohio State is really making a jump up. You know, Texas is making a jump up. On cool with these guys, or is it just a matter of more information being available to find the perfect situation for playing time and... towards early success and early numbers and maybe getting out of college in one year. I think it's a smorgasbord of all, of all those things. Um, you can even call it the Trey Young effect. <laughs> it kind of kind of like Trey Young deterred the blue blood realm, found the right, the perfect situation for him. And you're trying to tell me if he went somewhere like to, to no fault of their own, but if he went to Kentucky or Kansas last year instead of Oklahoma, is he going to be a top five NBA draft pick this past June? There's no way. It's not going to happen. And it, it, there's one conversation I just had with a five-star prospect in his class alone that said he's he's watching Vanderbilt right now. He's watching what Simi Shitu and Darius Garland are doing right now. And... He's thinking about that in the back of his mind of, why can't I be different? Why can't I start a new trend here? And do I have to go the blue blood route to get to where I want to be and to flourish in college and beyond? 
And along with that, I know I talked to a group of kids a while back that they received the same exact text message from the same coach from the same program to each of the prospects. These kids aren't stupid. They, they talk. And if you underrate the intellectual level of a kid, they're going to talk and they're going to get the facts out. So you throw it all together and I think it's really starting to hurt, not hurt these blue blood brands, but it's starting to help the rest of the power conference programs. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I think too, also, I think um, with some of the, the blue bloods, I think we see some assistants who don't have experience elsewhere or at yeah. the lower levels and haven't had to fight the hunger with some of that stuff. And that's, and that's no, that's no diss against some of these guys. Like, you know, if you're able to get your first assistant job at Kentucky, that's amazing, right? Like that, that's cool, but you don't have those benefit to fall back on years of fighting those scrappy battles to try and get a guy to come to East Tennessee state or Sam Houston, wherever you might've started and worked your way up the ranks. But I think you're right. I think the real key part is, you know, coaches develop systems and, and they develop things that work for them over the years. But what happens now is these kids, they screenshot text messages and send it to each other. You know, there's a good chance that 10 of these available guys are on a group chat together. That's, that's fairly active that they're like, Oh, did you hear from Kentucky today? Yeah. I heard from what they say to you. Oh, they told me this, or did you hear from Kansas today? Yeah. I heard from them. They said this. And I think what that leads us to is you mentioned Trey young and finding the perfect situation at Oklahoma where, I agree with you. I don't think Bill Self or John Calipari was going to let Trey Young rock the way that Lon Kruger did. Now, I'm not saying they were going to suppress that guy, but he wasn't going to get that many shots. He wasn't going to get those things. It was, it was a good decision for him. So I think as we're looking at this, this is makes James Wiseman like the ultimate litmus test for this, right? You've got the ultimate recruiting power in Kentucky and, and, and the you know a true recruiting wizard in John Calipari fighting tooth and nail for – with Memphis and first-year coach Penny Hardaway. Now, obviously, the fact that Penny Hardaway coached James Wiseman at Memphis East and in the summer with Team Penny before taking the Memphis job certainly is a big part of why he's in so deep with uh, James Wiseman. But, you know, this is uh, – we didn't even talk about this one in the most important battles. Like, how big of a battle is this for, for John Calipari in Kentucky to, to establish – or to continue to establish dominance as, you know, the baddest dude on the block and Kentucky being the blue blood that people can't, can't say no to. It's, it's, uh, like you said, it's, <laughs> it's the peak. Um, you know, Kentucky's not had the number one prospect and I know Vernon Carey's number one, but he, they, they haven't really been involved with or gotten one of the top one or two guys in recent years. And they felt they had with James Wiseman. They thought it was a done deal. And I think, as you said, that that, that started to really um, irritate John Calipari. And I think um, in the past few months, past several months, he, he was really uh, re-motivated maybe to kind of get back on the recruiting trail and say, hey, I still got it. You know, and I thought, we all thought Wiseman was done for Kentucky. Um, but there was that March day when Penny Hardaway was hired as the head coach. And now it's... The new kid on the block um, versus the dawn of the recruiting world. So, can can Cal Perry get it done, or can Memphis get it done? Whoever does not, you're gonna have a fan base that's gonna be pretty uh pretty angry about that. I think. 
Yeah, no question. I agree with you with that. And then just uh, in general, looking at the 2019 class as a whole, um, Corey, I, I can't remember which year was your first year really covering this extensively, but I know you've been around for a little bit now. How does 2019 compare to other classes that you've scouted? What kind of impact should we expect? You know, is this a class that's loaded with one-and-done guys or loaded with guys that are going to be All-Americans two and three years down the road? You know, um, I've talked to a, a brief amount of NBA scouts and personnel like the past few weeks, and the general consensus for the 2019 NBA draft was, man, this is brutal, this is awful. And my retort is, wait till 2020. <laughs> uh this and, of course, is, 2020 draft being the class of 2019 yeah, kids that we're speaking about right now. Correct. I mean, it's uh, – I, I like it for college basketball players. Um, I think the college game is going to love it because there's some lo- there is some longevity here, even with the, the five-star guys. Uh, you know, there are definitely some high upside guys that could definitely um, rise to the top. Like we said, Samuel Williamson and – um, Jemias Ramsey and Patrick Williams are, are some of the guys that can really, um, really ascend in the coming years. But there really is not many can't miss guys. There, there definitely is some um, faults in even the number one, two, three, four, and five prospect in America. Where compared to 2018, 2017, 2016, um, there wasn't as much. I mean, am I wrong there? I mean, what do you think? You've no. been around a little longer. I mean, but still, is it is it this bad that I think it is? Well, this is this is the twentieth class that I've covered, and yeah. I've said in the past, uh, the class of two thousand and five, which had guys like Andrew Bynum, Monte Ellis, Gerald Green, Julian Wright, Martel Webster, Marl Chalmers, Greg Paulus, um, Tyler Hansbrough, to name a few. You know, some guys who who did well, but. Not any like true like oh my gosh guys from the classes has always kind of set the standard, um, I guess the low standard if you will for for worst collective class that I've scouted, and 2019 I think is eventually going to compete with that. Now let's let's look at this in a couple ways. I'm not trying to be hard on these guys. I'm not I'm not trying to clown them. I'm not trying to talk down on them anyways because you know it's a year by year case and these guys are still elite in their little vacuum in this photograph we're taking of them in the year, but it's, it's definitely one with, with a lot more uncertainty. Like you mentioned our guys at the top, you know, Vernon Carey is going to learn to play hard on a regular basis. He's got to watch his conditioning. You know, he's a little bit of, is he, is he a throwback big, strong center or is he a, a new age Carl Towns want to face up kind of guy? You know, he's, he's kind of in another land. James Wiseman, Looks like he should be a potential all-star down the road, but we've got questions about his motor. Um, the skill level's improving, but, you know, is he a guy who really wants it on a nightly basis? That's what he's still trying to prove to people. Um, you know, Cole Anthony definitely brings it on a nightly basis, but, you know, is, is there a little bit of Austin Rivers to him? You know, all these guys, there's questions. You know, Jaden McDaniels has got to get stronger. Isaiah There's questions about all these guys, and it doesn't take away from their singular greatness or eliteness as a prospect, but I don't know if we can expect these guys to come in and do what R.J. Barrett is doing right now. We certainly don't, aren't going to have someone come in and do what a Kevin Durant did as a freshman 
you know, if we're going to go back to classes of old, you know, I, I don't know if we, if we see that coming, you know, we're not going to see Jason Tatum and Josh Jackson and all these guys type freshman years out of guys. We could, which would be pleasant, but also on the same token, I think that the class does have a little bit more depth than it's given credit for. I do think there are a lot of good big guys in this class and there's some solid wings who are going to have a lasting impact on the college game. So, you know, if you're a fan of one of these schools, I think we're going to get to know some of these guys a little bit. And I also think, at least I hope, guys leaving too early for the NBA isn't going away. I think we're just going to expect now, until the rule changes and guys can come straight out of high school, there's going to be at least 14 or 15 guys who leave. And maybe that many are going to get drafted in the first round. But we're starting to see the first round of guys who are in that wave of the NBA being willing to take 14, 15 guys in the first round after one year. We're seeing some of these guys flame out and not get their options picked up after those first two guaranteed years or after the third guaranteed year. My hope is that a few of these guys are going to be able to look in the mirror because I I do think this is a class that does have some self-awareness. Like I, I really enjoy sitting down with some of these kids because I really feel as much as any other class that these kids in this 2019 class have a pretty good handle on what their strengths and weaknesses are. It's something that I do find refreshing about the class. I I think they're by and large, a really intelligent group of kids, a really nice group of kids. So I think that maybe, and with some of the stuff they've seen with the FBI trial and all this other stuff going on, I think they're maybe a little more woke to everything that's awaiting them in the future. And I'm hoping because of that, they're going to be a little more cautious and take a little bit more time. So while maybe this isn't, going to turn out a great NBA class and there's going to be classes that have more talent from that regards. I do sincerely think that this is going to be a pretty good college basketball class and, you know, college basketball fans, biggest complaint is that they don't get to know these guys and that they're just in and out. And, you know, there's going to be some of those guys, but I really feel they're going to get to know these guys a lot more in some of the classes. So if you're a college fan, I think you're pretty excited about this class. Um, want to move on and kind of round things out and, and maybe take a look ahead this time at, this time next year, the class of 2020, Corey, you know, who are we talking about? What are we talking about? What's going to be the storyline in 2020? Who's the best player in America? Um, I think the star power is definitely not lacking. Um, where we have three, four, or five guys, kind of similar to 2016, I think, with, you know, Josh Jackson, um, Tatum, Giles, those kind of guys. Um, you have Scotty Barnes, who's number four in America, who could arguably flip-flop four to one with Jalen Green, and no one would bat, a, bat an eye. Um, Scotty Barnes, Jalen Green, Anthony Edwards, Evan Mobley. Um, they're, we don't want to throw the transcendent talent around, label around, but they definitely have the ceiling of one of those kind of guys. Um, and also... The you talked about depth, but depth on the wings in the perimeter in that class is is pretty sparkling. The front court it's like a role reversal. Um, a ton of good playmaking or athletic point guards, scoring guards. Not a ton of legitimately skilled, talented five-star big men, um, which is the exact opposite from 2019. So. It's definitely going to be a fun race to over the next two years or so of who finishes up number one in America 
And who kind of enters the picture? Could it be B.J. Boston? Could it be Zaire Williams? Um, could it be a guy like Greg Brown or Isaiah Todd again? Or even a guy like Walker Kessler? Um, does that stand out to you, that, that conversation? Yeah. Or yeah, what, no, what's I, the main think, one there for you? I think there's a few things. One, we always fall into a trap. At least maybe it's just because I'm, I'm starting to get old now and I've been doing this for 20 years. The, the, the further a class gets or closer class gets to graduating, the more we don't think it's very good. And yep. the more the, the class, the juniors look better than them. And even more so the next class looks of sophomores looks even better just because we don't know as much. Fight that a little bit. That's why I'm careful not to be too hard on 2019. Cause I think. And we need to maybe rewire our thinking on that a little bit. But I do think 2020 is shaping up above average class to to really take it to that next level, though. I think some points. Um, I think he's got a little Jamal Crawford to him personally, you know, just in kind of a flashy Whole, it is not a great looking point of group of point cards right now, at least at the elite level. In Vegas is certainly promising. He reminds me of like a young Andre Miller or a, or a Darren Williams. But I think that, and then the big story, if we're going to relate it to signing day and team rankings. taking the load road less traveled a little bit you know Jalen Green and he is going all over the place Anthony Edwards um, you hear about Florida think of that happening just when we sit down and look at things so I think um happens with the 2019 guys and, and the types of schools they they end up at and i think they're gonna i think we're gonna be looking at another year 2020 where we're sitting around and we're saying man of the big dogs so many of the elite guys who generate the excitement and the fan bases and really get people's blood boiling That's what I'm interested to see going on down the road. But I think uh, I think that pretty much wraps up. That's about it. It's just it's going to be intriguing, um, as we talked about earlier. Just because sign day or signing week is over with, I think there 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 could be even more commotion, as we talked about in the coming weeks. So it's it's worth keeping tabs on here with us and, um, you know, following along with uh, Vernon Carey and Isaiah Stewart and J.D. McDaniels and maybe James Wiseman and Zeke Naji, We expect those guys to commit within the next month alone. And, and that alone could really change definitely the team rankings, but even more so the uh, national title picture for next year and beyond. So definitely worth keeping tabs on here. Yeah, totally agree with you. Um before we check out here, I want to thank you, Corey, for joining me. I want Dave, I want to thank you for running the boards. But 
Most importantly, our customers, our subscribers, our listeners here really want to thank you for hanging with us on the podcast. This is a kind of a new thing for us. We don't really do a lot of these. Um, we're working through the kinks of it or we're working through our delivery and, and making sure we're giving you guys engaging stuff. But I, I think we've had some interesting stuff and it's something that you can look forward to a little bit more of us down the road and becoming more polished. But just want to thank you guys for hanging in with us and certainly making it a big signing period arrivals, at least in terms of our coverage and, and reading everything we've been putting out. You can expect a lot more coming and, you know, we'll see what's coming up next, but for now we're out of here.